This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the lessons that can be learned from radical histories. My guests are Aziz Chowdhury and Salim Valley. They've edited a new volume entitled Reflections on Knowledge, Learning, and Social Movements, Histories, Schools. You know, the endeavor of this book is about fashioning tools from forms and histories of resistance that are all too often forgotten and buried, and we've tried to unearth that. They see history as an organizing tool and discuss the ways in which social movements have learned from the past. History as being a process, and a process that's not only about what they do to us, so to speak, but also what we, uh, what people organizing together, have done to, to fight back and to resist and to change history. Aziz Chowdhury is an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in Social Movement Learning and Knowledge Production in the Department of Integrated Studies in Education at McGill University and a visiting professor at the Center for Education Rights and Transformation at the University of Johannesburg. Salim Valley is the director of the Center for Education Rights and Transformation, an associate professor at the Faculty of Education, University of Johannesburg, and a visiting professor at the Nelson Mandela University. They are both active in various social movements and solidarity organizations around the world. Aziz Chowdhury and Salim Valley, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Will. So I wanted to start by basically paraphrasing a question that you actually raise in your new book. And the question is is from Paul Kramer, who asked in the Chronicle of Higher Education last year, what is the use of history at a time of creeping and hard-charging authoritarian politics? Well, one of the things that Kramer talks about is that um, in the times like today, that radical historians and radical histories can disrupt um, senses of inevitability and can dig out um, alternatives um, that have sometimes lost or forgotten for various reasons um, and to widen the horizons of empathy. So in our introductory chapter, we basically agree that those are really important um, roles that history can play, um, both in terms, I think, of thinking through conditions that people have faced in previous generations of struggles, but then also how it's been that people have have resisted and struggled, uh, and to think about some of the relevance of and engage critically with that history uh, of of those histories for organising and um, progressive thinking today. I agree. Um, You know, Paul Kramer's question has been very important for us to frame the book because it is about disrupting inevitabilities, but it's also disrupting silences and the falsification of the past. I mean, Kramer talks about history not as something surmounted or transcended, but what he says, and I quote, it's, it has elements of a past haunted present. Um, So if we look at the current distribution of power, of privilege, of wealth, these um, present conditions are inseparable from the past. So look at 
the struggle for reparations, for slavery, or the legacy of colonialism, occupation, um, that continues to resonate today in terms of power and privilege. I think the, the, the other issue uh, for writing this book in, in a time like this is we have been inundated, both Aziz and I, by a number of young people through our role and involvement in various social movements, student organizations, immigrant worker, migrant groups, of people who are seeking ways to, while changing the world, uh, approaching and understanding history who are hungry, who are eager to learn about how people have struggled in the past, how they've done it. And of course, as Aziz has talked about, in doing so envisioning alternatives um, as part of developing their own uh, activism. I think those are the, the, the issues that come to mind and that Paul Kramer really assisted us. It's interesting to think you know, is the role of history becoming more important today? And as Kramer was saying, in these times of authoritarianism um, in in the U.S., but also in many other parts of the world. And it just, you know, you're saying about that the these sort of radical histories can disrupt inevitabilities and disrupt silences. But, I mean, in many ways, history is always a history of forgetting. There's always silences, even in more, quote-unquote, un- or non-authoritarian times, right? So, I mean, is it more relevant today, or is this something, is is sort of radical history always relevant? Oh, I think it's always relevant. You know, David Featherston talks about the significance of hidden geographies and histories of solidarity, and he says that, you know, such solidarities can be powerfully shaped by working-class groups and movements, and that this asserts the importance of groups that are seen as being marginal or remembered as being marginal in shaping practices of solidarity. And it's a challenge to also a lot of assumptions that are made um, that those who are subject to different forms of oppression lack the capacity or interest to construct solidarities. And I think it's really important in an organising context and in the context where people are, numerous people are saying, well, what do we do? How do we deal with whether it's the government or corporations or militarism or, or all of the above, um, you know, how do we, how do we sort of organise, how do we resist and so on? And I think one of the things that, um, you know, that um, the sort of the dominant tellings of history have been very good at and what Gary Kinsman, a sociologist in Canada, talks about as being the social organisation of forgetting is to kind of erase out or miss remember um, the role of many ordinary people, people who aren't necessarily the names in the history books and so on, who have been absolutely crucial and fundamental to building um, struggles for change. And so that history, I think if we don't think about that history, those processes whereby um, movements, struggles for change have been built through that kind of grunt work of organising, if you like, and then, then we sort of are deprived of, in some ways, tools and perspectives on how to organise today. So I do think that, you know, in, in yes, it's important today. I think, however, that in previous struggles too, 
um, will find experiences, not all struggles by any means, um, necessarily thinking through about, you know, previous histories of struggle, what do we learn from earlier struggles of unions of, of students of workers. But there are, I think, within many struggles, those folks and those spaces where people are trying to critically engage with history, not as a sort of a collection of facts and dates, but actually as understanding history as being a process and a process that's not only about what they do to us, so to speak, but also what we, uh, what people organising together have done to to fight back and to resist and to change history uh, in many cases. Yeah, I mean, Gary, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, Gary also talks about uh, historical amnesia and how that allows resistance uh, and the radical roots of movements and, and communities to be, uh, in a sense, displaced by dominant versions of history, more respectable or liberal forms of history. That's another important point. But I think largely it's about, uh, you know, the endeavor of this book is about fashioning tools from forms and histories of resistance that are all too often forgotten and buried, and we've tried to unearth that. So let's talk about some of these tools. I mean, this is so interesting, right? This this sort of struggle for historical memory, this this sort of seeing history as, well, collective memory, to, to reference some of the collective or to reference some of the um, memory studies work where memory is not some sort of individual process and memory is, as Aziz was saying, not some collection of facts and dates, but this social process that must be uh, struggled over and negotiated. Um, and of course, there are some people and institutions that have a lot more power than others. Um, and it seems like your book is trying to really go down to those who have been uh, oppressed and repressed and are struggling against powerful states and other institutions um, and trying to say, look, there, there's history here that, that should be remembered. So let's go into some of these tools. How do certain social movements remember? How do they construct history that is alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if we look at um, how um, movements do that, I mean, there's a multiplicity of ways. Um, and, you know, Andrew Flynn, who's one of the contributors to the book, who's done some really, I think, important work both within the UK uh, in relation to kind of labor histories and buried community histories, but more generally, I think, has made some really important contributions to sort of thinking through and mapping out and documenting different ways in which people, ordinary people engaged in struggles have created informal archives um, of uh, all kinds of things. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the flyers and the posters and the stickers and the badges and the publications in some cases that existed for many of us who were organising in the pre-internet era uh, That and, and since then too um, have kind of buried in boxes and, you know, all kinds of places, plastic bags and so on, and sort of recognising that within those mundane often seeming things, if, it, if we've been involved in producing them, you know, maybe they're not things that we immediately think of as being places of intellectual work and thought and, and, and analysis and so on. But going back into 
those kinds of products and those kinds of collective um, uh, um, and, you know, individual contributions in there too are ways that, um, you know, people are now thinking, okay, do you digitize this? Do you put this on online? Do you find ways to not only just to sort of make it more um, available um, but also think about how do you actually do that in a way that is relevant to new generations? It's not just about the preserving. It's also about how these histories are not just things to be sort of looked at um, in a sort of a rather um, you know, sort of passive way, but are tools for being able to engage with political struggles. So there are a range, I think, of, of people who are doing work on that in different spaces. Anandi Ramamurti and uh, Kalpana Wilson, for example, in a chapter that is mainly around um, South Asian, uh, British South Asian organising in the um, through the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, in Anandi Ramamurti's work, for example, um, that kind of preservation of posters and bulletins uh, and so on, alongside oral histories with people who are involved with the political struggles of the 70s and 80s, the anti-racist struggles in Britain, the sort of particular politics of that time, I think has produced some really rich work. And so, I mean, those are a couple, I guess, a, a, you know, a couple of examples that give a sense of perhaps the ways in which um, some people and some people associated with the book project are working on that. But then there's also other stuff uh, other kinds of perhaps less obvious processes about intergenerational learning that actually in some ways are more embedded in organising and slow kind of um, under-the-radar sorts of knowledge exchange and production that's happening cross-generationally as, if you like, older and newer generations of um, activists are finding time to to do stuff together whatever that may be yeah i mean you know people like robin kelly and martha biondi for example have chapters that deal with uh, black and third world liberation politics from the 60s and that's really important for activists in the black lives matter movement for example we also have chapters that explore the rich heritage of the South African liberation struggle. And two of the authors have been involved in uh, hip-hop groups in the 80s. And, um, you know, that history also is documented as uh, forms of struggle from below, knowledge uh, from below. And um, in a sense, Though that history, those archives that have been mentioned are absolutely imperative for contemporary organizing and activism. One other example, you know, we have had a very vibrant student movement in South Africa focused around the commodification of education and the need to make higher education free. So uh, one of the, the, the chapters written by Kony Benson, Asher Gametzi and Akustua uh, reflects 
on the kind of critical African history content as a way of, of helping uh, the student movement to look at issues of curriculum and, and decolonization. And they've dug up um, a material written uh, by activists from the past, material that hasn't been stored in archives, but um, they've uh, used this material for contemporary struggles. So the purpose is to alert people to material that exists, even though it might not be documented and catalogued and put into archives, but as a way of instilling the importance of this material and experiences. So the two of you, from my understanding, have been involved in various social movements in different parts of the world for many years and decades at this point. Is there anything that you have learned by looking back at these, you know, informal archives or intergenerational learning from other social movements or people who have participated in social movements that have informed what you do in later social movements? Like, you know, what sort of learning have you encountered that, that you have done um, in this sort of ongoing process of social movements? Well, I mean, if I can talk about something that's, um, you know, sort of working on now, both with a, a union friend here and organisers in migrant and immigrant worker organisers in Canada, um, you know, one of the things I think that has come up uh, again has been, you know, there's this, often there's this talk about a sense of newness when it comes down to thinking about, let's say, worker centres and organising outside of unions, organising, supporting ununionized workers and so on. And there's a lot of talk, um, both, I think, in the activist world and in the academic world about, you know, and the novelty of this. And a number of us over the years have talked about the fact that, no, there are precedents for this. And in fact, what we have in, if we think about labour history, I've just finished writing a short article um, with Dave Blakeney from the Postal Workers Union here, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, which reflects our you know, conversations and work together over many years as, as educators in different ways, both informally, non-formally and so on, is, I think, a need to look back um, at history because the omissions of history shape very often the kind of landscape and understandings that people have uh, about how agency, about how and who does what. And to give you an example, you know, if you look at the radical tradition, so to speak, in Canada, it's a multiracial one. And yet the histories, for example, of Chinese and Japanese Canadian organising in the early part of the 20th century at a time of sort of white exclusionary trade unionism and the histories of other um, you know, communities who've often been both struggling with the state, struggling with the bosses and struggling with the mainstream unions, so to speak if at all mentioned, often a kind of a footnote. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the things I think is really important in terms of, let's say, working with um, alliances of um, people in 2018 in relation to labour and immigration justice issues in Canada is to point out that, as, you know, as David Featherston said, uh, that people who are oppressed and who are marginalised economically and socially, um, there's a long history 
of fighting back. There's a long history also and an unacknowledged history, I think, of how that has shaped um, all kinds of things um, in terms of whether it's, uh, you know, around around different histories of, of sort of anti-racist um, politics. Um, but it's like sometimes the remembering of these um, struggles is kind of anecdotal and scattered around and not particularly sort of pulled together in a more systemic kind of way. And to me, I think there's a real importance of looking now um, at those histories to really challenge, for example, some of the tendencies that sometimes exist to view um, precarious workers and um, you know migrant workers, I'm thinking in particular, um, as being sort of people who need the um, often, you know, sort of white Canadian saviour to tell them what their, you know, how to organise and what their rights is. And I think it's it's in those histories that kind of help to inoculate and build up. It's not just in those histories, it's what we do with those histories now. The history alone isn't enough. And I think uh, that can be important organising tools. So for me, I suppose the, the short answer is, um, you know, I've, I think I've always thought history was really important. But um, in a really practical sense and in, in sort of seeing it as being a intrinsic tool for organising and for sort of political education in the here and now, uh, I think that sense has become much more sharpened over the years. For me, um, I mean, it's quite clear that the hegemonic dominant view of history is not able to provide answers. I'm confronted constantly with the question, well, you know, 24 years after the first democratic elections in South Africa, why is the level of poverty and inequality still so high? And it's only looking at the struggles from below can one get uh, a proper sense of, of what happened in the past two decades. So our six chapters on South Africa um, looks at the, the the breadth and the depth of the struggles that uh, have not really stopped. Um, I mean, there's an activist from Soweto, Trevor Nguane, who was involved and was a counsellor uh, after the democratic elections for uh, the African National Congress, the ruling party. And his chapter is very significant and shows what the black working class communities in South Africa went through and why, in a sense, there hasn't been the kind of meaningful change that everybody expected. There's also, uh, uh, separately, uh, the role of women, for example, in struggle has been uh, ignored or underplayed. And one of the chapters in our collection deals with the, the important vital role of women uh, in struggle. Otherwise, the hegemonic views of big men and elides the struggles from below and the role of women. So for me, I think this encounter with different individuals involved in collective struggle 
and their rich experiences allows one to make sense of the present. Are there any examples of moments when the dominant version of history changed or altered because of these the histories from below, because of these militant histories, these radical historians? Are, do you, are there any good examples that, that show that sort of the power that history as an organizing tool can actually have on reshaping the dominant history? Well, I think we start the book by looking at the life and the work of Walter Rodney. He is somebody whose political activism, uh, the popular education he was involved with, his organizing, and in fact his study of history uh, made a very significant impact on the way people see history. I'm thinking of particularly his how Europe underdeveloped Africa. And it's a seminal work, uh, and it captures the struggles from below, but it also uh, influenced uh, a generation of thinking about development and colonialism uh, and the need for struggle and resistance uh, differently. I mean, I think to pick up on that as well, um, you know, if we look at different struggles around the world that have, have been, you know, anti-colonial struggles, um, that sense of history and holding on to a history that isn't the sort of the colonizer's history um, is a theme that comes through um, not only in the book, but, you know, in, in many struggles. In the book, Irene Watson and... Sharon Venn, who are two Indigenous, both happen to be lawyers, uh, Indigenous women. Um, I mean, both of those people in the book and separately, I think, have done an enormous amount of work to keep putting forward over decades um, in the face of Australian and Canadian and New Zealand and US and other uh, governments' official histories that know uh, that Indigenous peoples did not cede sovereignty when the uh, Europeans came and planted flags uh, and so on, and that have, in the work that they've done, I think, always had this very strong assertion of a history um, that is not, to quote Buffy St. Marie, who's a, a, a Cree singer-songwriter, she talks about, you know, history being written in a liar's scrawl. Folks like, uh, you know, many Indigenous scholars, activists, I think, that history has been, and an anti-colonial and an Indigenous history, has been one that, in spite of all of the things that governments and uh, businesses have thrown at, at them, um, have you know really worked, have figured out ways to document and write and act back to um, those official archives, those official histories. So, I mean, in the book, the chapter that they write together looks at and exposes a history of international efforts by Indigenous peoples at the United Nations, which isn't the sort of version that often we might read from from governments or UN agencies or non-governmental organisations, for example. And I think, you know, that history coupled with, again, I don't think it's history alone, I think it's how people use history um, in the daily work of organising and education um, that is often so key to this sort of sense of pushing through and nurturing uh, a sense of, of histories from below, as some people 
talk about them not as being you know as as being essentially part of trying to build movements and and um and power and collectivity to 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 fight back and to resist has the role of digital media helped in this process of of alternative histories of radical histories i mean i think technology is a, a technology is a tool like um other other things and there's certainly ways that people are using you know the internet and the digital media platforms to to try and document and make accessible different kinds of histories um but I think that again, um, the social aspects and the sort of the 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 ways in which people coming together um, in an organising context or uh, being able to sort of develop and work through and think through and critically engage with history. This isn't we're not putting forward sort of some argument that says you know isn't all activist history and all histories of struggle great? No, I mean part of the learning and part of the value of this is actually I think people coming together and talking through and looking perhaps with um, lenses or perspectives um, that are uh, ones that are, you know, very much rooted kind of in the uh, in, in, in the here and now, but recognising and thinking about the kind of the, the layers or the shoulders, I guess, of earlier struggles on which we all kind of stand. So, I mean, I think it is, uh, 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 you know, something that is like, a lot of other things can be used as a tool. I don't have a sort of techno-utopian uh, view that it has rapidly advanced or transformed, um, you know, the the sort of the, the social processes, I guess, that I think are so key to actually making sure that this kind of engagement with social movement, knowledge production and history of struggles and histories of what those struggles, what the conditions of those struggles have been facing, um, uh, and so on. I don't, I don't think it's uh, it's it's radically transformed in any way. You know those uh, those sort of horizons or possibilities. You know the opening of the first chapter after the introduction, Andrew Flynn's chapter, talks about the possibilities of using digital technology. Uh, in a positive sense, and of course, we know how social media platforms can be used by activists and movements to share, preserve, uh, engage, uh, uh, and educate from historical sources. But we also talk about and uh, the dangers of technology and the over reliance. On the internet for research, for example, we quote Robin Rodriguez, who who who, who makes the point that uh, such an over reliance, you know, uh, can sometimes uh, prevent people from very grassroots movements uh, interacting with such groups. So really uh, one does need to be cautious and critical of technology but we certainly understand that it has its uses. Well, Aziz Chowdhury and Salim Bali, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It, it really is a pleasure to talk today. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Will. Thank you. Aziz Chowdhury is an associate professor at McGill University and Salim Bali is an associate professor at the University of Johannesburg. Their new co-edited collection, 
is Reflections on Knowledge, Learning, and Social Movements, which was published by Routledge earlier this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.